0: published in 1907 and written by Arthur Christopher Benson. This is an autobiography of young Arthur's life in a wealthy family, and with a title such as The House of Quiet, I'm extremely hopeful that it will help you get to sleep. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest so they can have a productive day and achieve what they need to achieve. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. Every episode tells a different story and you're welcome to listen to whichever one works for you. My goal with this podcast is to help people everywhere get the good night's rest that they need. But I do need your help to do this. If you would be so kind, please jump into iTunes, CastBox or Stitcher or wherever you're listening. Subscribe and leave a review. You would be surprised at how helpful this is. It's a really small thing, but does have a big impact. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The House of Quiet An autobiography by Arthur Christopher Benson December 7th, 1897 I sit this evening towards the end of the year, in a deep armchair in a large, low-panelled room that serves me, as a bedroom and study together. The windows are hung with faded tapestry curtains. There is a great open-tiled fireplace before me, with logs red crumbling, bedded in grey ash, every now and then, winking out flame and lighting up the lean iron dogs that support the fuel. Odd Dutch tiles pave and wall the cavernous hearth, this one, a quaint galleon in full sail on a vicious, crested sea, that, a stout, sleek bird, standing in complacent tranquility, At the back of the hearth, with the swift shadows flickering over it, is a large iron panel showing a king in a war chariot, with a flying cloak issuing from an arched portal upon a bridge which spans a furious stream, and shaking out the reins of two stamping steeds On the high chimney board is a row of delft plates. The room is furnished with no precision or propriety, the furniture having drifted in fortuitously as it was needed. Here is a tapestried couch. There, an oak bookcase crammed with a strange assortment of books. Here, a tall press, a picture or two, a bishop embedded in lawn with a cauliflower wig, a crayon sketch of a scholarly head. There is no plan of decoration, all fantastic miscellany. At the far end, under an arch of oak, stands a bed, Screened from the room by a dark leather screen Outside, all is unutterably still Not with the stillness that sometimes falls on a sleeping town Where the hush seems invaded by imperceptible cries But with the deep tranquility of the countryside Nestling down into itself the trees are silent, listening intently, I can hear the trickle of the mill leet, and the murmur of the hazel hidden stream, but that slumberous sound ministers, as it were, the dreamful quality, like the breathing of the sleeper, enough and not more than enough to give the sense of sleeping life as opposed to the aching, icy stillness of death. I may speak shortly of my parentage and circumstances. I was the only son of my father, a man who held a high administrative position under government. He owed his advancement not to family connections, for our family, though ancient, was obscure. No doubt it may be urged that all families are equally ancient, but what I mean is that our family had for many generations preserved a sedulous tradition of gentle blood through poverty. And simple service. My ancestors had been mostly clergymen, doctors, lawyers. At no time had we risen to the dignity of a landed position or accumulated wealth. But we had portraits, miniatures, plate in no profusion but enough to be able to feel that for a century or two we had enjoyed a liberal education and had opportunities for refinement if not leisure and aptitude for cultivating the arts of life. It had not been a mere sordid struggle an inability to escape from the coarsening pressure of gross anxieties, but something gracious, self-contained, benevolent, active. My father changed this. His profession brought him into contact with men of rank and influence. He was fitted by nature to play a high social part. He had an irresistible geniality and something of a courtly air. He married late the daughter of an impoverished offshoot of a great English family and I was their only child. The London life is dim to me. I faintly recollect being brought into the room in a velvet suit to make my bow to some assembled circle of guests. I remember hearing from the nursery the din and hubbub of a dinner party rising in faint gusts as the door was opened and shut even a brilliant cascades of music sparkling through the house when I awoke after a first sleep in what seemed to me some dead hour of the night. But my father had no wish to make me into a precocious monkey playing self-conscious tricks for the amusement of visitors and I lived for the most part in the company of my mother, herself almost a child, and my faithful nurse, a small, simple-minded Yorkshire woman who had been my mother's nurse before. When I was about six years old, my father died suddenly, and the first great shock of my life was the sight of the handsome waxen face with the blurred and flinty look of the dulled eyes the leaden pallor of the thin hands crossed on his breast to this day I see the blue shadows of the ruffled shroud about his neck and wrists our movements were simple enough. Only that summer, owing to an accession of wealth, my father and mother had determined on some country home to which they might retire in his months of freedom. My mother had never cared for London Together they had found in the heart of the country a house that attracted both of them, and a long lease had been taken within a week or two of my father's death. Our furniture was at once transferred thither, and from that hour it has been my home. The region in which I live is a land of ridge and vale, as though it had been ploughed with a gigantic plough. The high roads lie as a rule along the backs of the uplands, and the villages stand on the windy heights. The lines of railway which run along the valley tend to create a new species of valley village, but the old hamlets with their grey stone, high-backed churches, with slender shingled spires, stand aloft the pure air racing over them. The ancient manors and granges are as a rule built in the more sheltered and sequestered valleys, approached from the high road by winding wood lanes as exquisite beauty. The soil is sandy, and a soft stone is quarried in many places by the roadside Leaving quaint miniature cliffs and bluffs of weathered yellow, sometimes so evenly stratified as to look like a rock temple or a buried ruin with moldering buttresses. About these pits grow little knots of hazels and ash suckers and the whole is hung in summer with luxuriant creepers and climbing plants, out of which the crumbling rock surfaces emerge. The roads go down very steeply to the valleys, which are thick-set with copse and woodland, and at the bottom runs a full-fed stream with cascades and pebbly shingles, running dark under scarps of sandstone, or hidden deep under thick coverts of hazel, the water in the light a pure grey-green. Some chalk is mingled with these ridges, so that in rainy weather the hoof prints in the roads ooze as with milk. The view from these uplands is of exquisite beauty, Ridge after ridge, rolling its soft outlines, thinly wooded. Far away are glimpses of high heathery tracks, Black with pines, or a solitary clump upon some naked down. But the views in the valleys are even more beautiful, the steep wood rises from the stream, or the grave lines of some tilted fallow. In summer, the water plants grow with rich luxuriance by the rivulet: tall willow herb and velvety loosestrife, tufted meadow sweet and luxuriant comfrey. The homesteads are of singular state lines with their great brick chimney stacks, the upper stories weather-tiled, and the roof of flat tiles of standstone, the whole mellowed by orange and grey lichens, till the houses seem to have sprung from the very soil. My own home, bearing the tranquil name of Golden End, is an ancient manor out of a sandy lane turns an avenue of great Scotch firs, passing the house and inclining gradually in its direction. The house is a strange medley. One part of it is an Elizabethan house, mullioned of grey stone. One wing is weather-tiled and... ...of simple outline. The front, added at some period of prosperity... ...is Georgian, thickly set with large windows. Overall is a little tiled cupola... ...where an alarm bell hangs. There is a small square garden in front... ...surrounded by low walls... Above the house lies what was once a bowling green with a terraced walk surrounding it. The kitchen garden comes close to the windows and is protected on one side by a gigantic yew hedge like a green bastion on the other by an ancient stone wall with a tiled roof Below the house lie quaint farm buildings, cart sheds, barns, granaries, and stables. Beyond them are pools, fringed with self-sown ashes, and an orchard, in the middle of which stands a brick dovecot with sandstone tiles. The meadows fall, from the house to the stream, but the greater part of the few acres which we hold is simple woodland, where the copse grows thick and dark, with here and there a stately forest tree. The house seen as I love best to see it from the avenue on a winter evening. Rises a dark, irregular pile, crowned with the cupola, and the massive chimneys against a green and liquid sky, in which trembles a single star. The pine trees are blacker still, and below lies the dim, mysterious woodland, with the mist rising over the stream and beyond that, soft upland and after upland, like a land of dreams, out to the horizon's verge. Within all is dark and low. There is a central panelled hall with round oak arches on either hand, leading through little anterooms to a parlour and dining room. There are wide, meaningless corridors with steps up and down that connect the wings with the central building. The staircases are the most solid of oak. All the rooms are panelled except the attics, which show the beams crossing in the ancient plasterwork. At the top, of the house is a long room which runs from end to end, with a great open fireplace. The kitchen is a huge paved chamber, with an oak pillar in the centre. A certain amount of massive oak furniture, sideboards, chests and presses, with initials or dates belongs to the place, but my father was a great collector of books, china, and pictures which, with the furniture of a large London house, were put hurriedly in, with little attempt at order, and no one has since troubled to arrange them, One little feature must be mentioned. At the top of the house, a crazy oak door gives access to a flight of stairs that leads on to a parapet. But below the stairs is a tiny oratory with an altar and some seats, where the household assemble every morning for a few prayers and together sing an artless hymn. My mother, who through the following pages, must be understood, to be presiding deity of the scene. How shall I describe her? Seen through her son's eyes, she has an extraordinary tranquility and graciousness of mien. She moves slowly, with an absolutely unconscious dignity. She is naturally very silent, and has a fixed belief that she is entirely devoid of all intellectual power, which is in one sense true, for she reads little and has no taste for discussion. At the same time, she is gifted with an extraordinary shrewdness and penetration in practical matters and I would trust her judgment without hesitation. She is intensely affectionate and has the largest heart I have ever known but at the same time is capable of taking almost whimsical prejudices against people, which, however, I have combated them at the time, have generally proved to be justified by subsequent events. Her sympathy and her geniality make her delightful company, for she delights in listening to the talk of clever people, and has a strong sense of humour. She likes being read to, though I do not think she questions the thought of what is read. She is deeply religious, though I do not suppose she could give a reason for her faith and is constantly tolerant of religious differences, which she never attempts to comprehend. In the village, she is simply adored by men and women, and children alike, though she is not particularly given to what is called visiting the poor. At the same time, If there is any trouble in any house, no matter of what kind, she goes there straight by instinct and has none of the dread of emotional scenes which make so many of us cowards in the presence of sorrow and suffering. I do not think she feels any duty about it but it is as natural and spontaneous for her to go as it is for most of us to desire to keep away. A shrewd woman of the village, a labourer's wife whom my mother had seen through a dreadful tragedy a year or two before, once said in reply to a question of mine, It isn't as if her ladyship said or did more than anyone else. Everyone was kind to us, but she used to come in and sit with me and look at me, and after a little I used to feel that it was alright. She manages the household with less expenditure of trouble than I have ever seen. Our servants never seem to leave us. They are paid what many people would call absurdly high wages, but I do not think that it is the attraction. My mother does not see very much of them, and finds fault when rarely necessary, with a simple directness which I have in vain tried to emulate. But her displeasure is so impersonal, that there seems to be no sting in it. It is not that they have failed in their duty to herself, but they have been untrue to the larger duty to which she is herself obedient. She never seems to labour under any strong sense of the imperative duty of philanthropic activity. Indeed, it is hard to say how her days are filled, but in her simplicity her unselfishness, her quiet acceptance of the conditions of life, her tranquility and her devoted lovingness, she seems to me the best Christian I have ever seen, and to come nearest to the ideals of Christ. But though a large part of her large income is spent on unostentatious benevolence, she would think it preposterous if it were suggested to her that Christianity demanded an absolute sacrifice of worldly possessions. Yet she sets no store on comfort or the evidences of wealth she simply accepts them and has a strong instinctive feeling of stewardship I cannot help thinking that such women are becoming rarer I greatly acknowledge the constant presence of an element of my life for which, for want of a better name I will call the sense of beauty I mean by that the unaccountable thrill of emotion by which one is sometimes surprised. Often, quite suddenly, and unexpectedly, this sense of wonder which darts upon the mind with an almost physical sensation seems to come in two different ways. With some, the majority I believe. It originates entirely in personal relations with other human beings and is known as love. With others, it arises over a larger region and is inspired by a sudden perception of some incommunicable beauty in a flower, a scent, a view, a picture, a poem, those in whom the latter sense predominates are, I think less apt to be affected by human relationships, but pass through the world in such a certain solitary and wistful mood with perhaps more wide and general sources of happiness but less liable to be stirred to the depths of their being by a friendship or a passion to take typical examples of such a class I conceive that Wordsworth and William Morris were instances Wordsworth derived, I believe, his highest inspiration from the solemn dignities of nature in her most stupendous and majestic forms, while to Morris belonged that power which amounted him the positive genius for seeing beauty in the most homely and simple things. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and if you're not, feel free to listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. In the meantime, good night.